0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I'm excited to still gather uh, together this Sunday. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. Last week we were looking at the final three plagues before we get to that last major plague. And so we looked at uh, the hail, the locust, the darkness, and In that discussion, we talked about how uh, the plagues are meant to bring judgment, uh, but they also are are a way where God makes provision for escape. Um, And so we saw how God calls people to turn to him for shelter from his wrath. And then we talked about the goal of his salvation being to equip people with storytelling content to pass on to the generations to come. Uh, with it, the idea that God's stories are meant to be told as a way of equipping the next generation for what's next. Right, The idea that we need to know how God has saved his people in the past, how God has provided for his people in the past, so that when we're going through difficult circumstances ourselves, or trials, or, or challenges, or temptations, that we can look to that storytelling, we can look to those stories of God's faithfulness, and see him being faithful to us now. Seeing his goodness shine through. Because we trust that he's, he's shown himself to be good in the past. He'll certainly show himself to be good today. And so uh, those three plagues together, uh, that was kind of the emphasis and the point of um, conversation that we had last week. That God made a way even for the Egyptians to escape, right? Like he warned them in the midst of that hail that if they brought their stuff inside, it would be spared. Um, and so God calls us to shelter in him too from his coming wrath and we have a responsibility to uh, respond to that. The application last week was, do I take regular shelter in Jesus by turning turning my heart to him in faithful obedience in all known ways while letting the stories of His, his of his faithfulness in times past keep me persevering in moments when I'm prone to question or doubt his actions? And so we saw Pharaoh's lack of willingness to be completely obedient. He tried to alter the calls to be obedient, tried to tweak God's plans and tweak God's requirements, and God certainly didn't respond well to that. That brings us to Exodus chapter eleven, um, which is a preview of that final plague that's to come—the one that is the basis for our understanding of the Passover, which then leads into our understanding of. The Lord's Supper. So I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. We obviously don't have access to notes tonight for you to see visually, but those are made available through the um, QR code that has been posted in past. Um, But then also, you can probably refer to a link on your uh, device if you want to, to pull that back up um, on uh, our Google Drive. If not, you can reference it later. Um, Our summary sentence for tonight, and I'll go slower than normal since we don't have the visual to show you. Our summary sentence is that God's goodness is distinctly experienced by his people. And if that's all you get, write that down. God's goodness is distinctly experienced by his people. And then we're going we're to give you some ways that we see that distinct experience. Through the specific timing of his deliverances, the intentional ways he provides, sometimes even through lost people, and the particular sufferings he prohibits in our lives. God's goodness is distinctly experienced by his people through the specific timing of his deliverances, the intentional ways he provides, and sometimes that's through lost people, and the particular sufferings he prohibits in our lives. There's ways that he delivers us, and then there's things that he never has to deliver us from because he never lets them enter into our life. For our kids, our summary sentence for our kids tonight, God's people always receive God's special goodness. God's people always receive God's special goodness. Now let's think back to what we've learned already in our series on the plagues, specifically about God, right? Because we were told that the plagues were going to be worked in such a way where the Egyptians and the Israelites and even surrounding nations would come to know him as Yahweh, would come to know him as God. Uh, Things that we've learned about him through the onset of the plagues That he is the almighty sovereign ruler of all creation Who remains connected by listening to his people He's the almighty sovereign ruler of all creation Who remains connected by listening to his people Don't forget what we saw in Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 Right. We've we've certainly seen as God has done battle with the Egyptian gods, which really hasn't been a battle at all. Right. Because those gods aren't in existence. And at best, they have tried to manifest themselves through maybe demonic forces and whatnot. But whatever it's looked like, God has won every one of those battles. He's certainly the almighty, sovereign creator of the universe He rules everything. And yet what's so important for us to see is that he remains connected to his people In the midst of being this almighty High and holy God He's not disconnected from his creation, right? He, he stays very connected And we see that in uh, Exodus chapter 2 Verse 23 During those many days The king of Egypt died And the people of Israel groaned Because of their slavery And they cried out for help Their cry for rescue from slavery Came up to God And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Right? That's the difference between the Egyptian gods and the God of Israel. The Egyptian gods were not there when they needed when they when they needed them most, and the God of Israel is for the Hebrews. He's listening, he's caring. He hears the groans, he hears the cries, and he responds to their prayers. He's also intentional towards his people by working and moving in the right ways at the right times. Right? He's the almighty creator. He stays connected to his people. He hears them. He listens to them. But he's intentional towards his people by working and moving in the right ways and at the right times. Now, it may feel slow to the Hebrews because they've been here for 400 years, but we know Genesis teaches us the 400 years were intentional, right? It was to allow the sin of the Amorites to fill up and... And he was prepping them and and readying them to be a nation. And so all of this has been intentional. And we see that he is intentional towards his people. That's what we've learned about God. And then lastly, he is just and merciful in the ways he responds to those who are against him and his own. He's just and merciful in the ways he responds to those who are against him and his own. Right. So he is going to respond in just ways to those who are anti-him or anti-his people. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are against the Hebrews. They've, been, they've bondaged them to slavery for years. They've mistreated them. They've killed them, right? And God responds in just ways, but even in his justice, he remains merciful. He can't disconnect himself from his mercy, right? And so he extends opportunities for the Egyptians to come out of that wrath too. He desires for Egypt to be saved, We'll see uh, in other books that we get into in the Old Testament in the future, there's passages that talk about the salvation of Egypt. God desires their salvation as well, and so he's got justice and mercy coupled together within the midst of these plagues. Now, this passage, this chapter may seem a little confusing because when you first read it in combination with what we saw last week, it kind of feels out of place because when you read the ending of chapter 10, remember Pharaoh said to him in verse 28, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So it feels like that's the last time they talk. That's their last conversation. And then chapter 11 picks up and we're right back in the throne room talking again. Most commentators believe that chapter 11 is probably a continuation of ...of that conversation in chapter 10 and probably fits back in the timeline of chapter 10. Let me give you an example for uh, verses 1 through 3. Those probably happened prior to verses 24 and through 29 in chapter 10. So back during the time of darkness, that's probably when God's having this conversation with Moses. Right? The Lord said to Moses, one more plague I'm going to bring. So fit that conversation back into chapter 10 during those three days of darkness... God's probably having this conversation with Moses. It doesn't make for good storytelling if he goes ahead and puts that back into the text. So he waits and and adds that afterwards because it comes better grouped with that final plague. I think you can also understand verses 4 through 8, the actual conversation where it says Moses said to Pharaoh, that probably happens between verses 28 and 29 in chapter 10. Okay, So think of chapter 11 fitting back into the timeline of chapter 10. And it'll be less confusing to you as to why did Pharaoh kick Moses out and say, I'll kill you the next time I see you. And then in chapter 11, they're having a conversation again. Okay, um, Verses 9 and 10 in chapter 11 specifically provide a good summary of all that's taken place in the recent chapters. It alludes back to chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. So let me read that to you real quick. Chapter 7, verse 3 says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Right. So that was the prequel to the plagues. And then we see here in chapter 11, verse 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. I mean, that's a great summary for what we've seen through these first nine plagues. It's Pharaoh not listening. It's God hardening his heart. It's all on purpose. It's all intentional so that God can show his great wonders to everyone, right? Uh, Moses and Aaron have been a model for what it looks like to have wholehearted obedience throughout this process. The rejection by Pharaoh is meant to lead to God's glory being put on full display for all to see through his miraculous wonders. And Pharaoh's rejection remains a part of God's plan, and it was never allowed to operate outside of it. Let me say that again. Pharaoh's rejection remained a part of God's plan the entire time. His rejection was never allowed to operate outside of God's plan. It's so important for us to see that as we talk about God and Pharaoh battling, there's nothing that's ever in question here. It's always part of God's plan. He's always ruling and reigning. There's never anything that's really in question. This final plague, and most of you know where we're going with this, the death of the firstborn. This final plague attacks Osiris, who was the god of the dead, and then also Anubis, who was his assistant. The assistant's job was to Take the embalmed or the dead in Egypt and lead them to the afterlife. So you've got Osiris, who's supposed to be the god of the dead. He oversees the dead world. You've got his assistant who leads those who have died into the promised afterlife. God attacks that, that, that concept. God attacks that notion by showing that he's over death through this plague. All right, let's jump right into the text. I'm going to give you three points as I normally do tonight. Uh, to go along with it. The first one being we find hope in God's sovereign goodness. We find hope in God's sovereign goodness. Hope in God's sovereign goodness. Number one, the Lord sovereignly determines when the suffering of his people will end. The Lord sovereignly determines when the suffering of his people will will end. Now we're going to look at God's goodness through the lens of three different perspectives. The first one being his sovereign goodness, seeing it through a sovereign perspective. His goodness comes to his people, right? His goodness comes to the Hebrews in the right timing, the right timing. He determines when the suffering of the people will end. Go back to look at verse one. It says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward he will let you go from here and when he lets you go he will drive you away completely and don't miss this we've already we've already referred to it in uh verse or chapter 10 i guess it was where where god said i could have i could have extinguished you a long time ago i I could have brought the freedom of my people a long time ago had i chosen to right like God could have skipped the, the frogs and he could have skipped the boils and he could have skipped the bloody Nile River. He could have skipped all those plagues and jumped right to this last one probably and secured the freedom of his people. Now, if you're a Hebrew, you would look at that and say, well, let's do that one. Like, if this is choose my own adventure, I choose that adventure where we go straight to the last plague. Because a lot of commentators believe the plagues probably lasted over the course of a full year. Right, we read this, and, and probably from our children's perspective, when we were taught these plagues, we think of them happening like one after another. And some of them may have done that. But when you get into even like the concept of like the the different crops that had come up and had not come up, when we talked about the hail and the locust, um, a lot of commentators believe that's showing us some some time gap as far as when these plagues were happening. So it may have been over the course of a year. I mean, think about the things that—and if you think about that, that does give you a little— Uh, insight as to how the Egyptians, particularly Pharaoh, could um, change their minds so quickly about listening to God. I mean, think about what happens in the course of one calendar year for us. We go through highs and lows and things that happen at the beginning of the year. By the time December rolls around, it feels like that was forever ago, right? And some of us experience like uh, these uh, phases of revival in our life Or maybe there is this prompting And conviction that sets in And we, we start to move in one direction And then by the end of the year We've kind of tailored off And tapered back on some of that If these plagues were happening Over the course of a year Maybe that helps to explain Why um, they keep reverting back To their old prideful ways Particularly Pharaoh right? But the, the point here is that God says to Moses This plague will do it This plague will end it Remember Every other time he's told Moses, this plague won't do it, right? This plague won't produce freedom. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. His heart's going to be hardened. He's not going to let the people go. Now we see a change. And think about from Moses' perspective, he had no idea how many plagues were going to have to come. Right? Like we take for, for granted the fact that we know there's 10 of them. So as I've been preaching through these sermons, you know, hey, we're coming to the end of the plagues here pretty quickly. We have no reason to believe that Moses knew. I mean, it's just plague after plague after plague, and Moses is probably thinking, like, how many, Lord? Like, how long does this have to last? When will you tell me that the freedom is coming? Finally, God has the conversation with Moses. I wonder if Moses was even kind of um, listening, kind of half-heartedly maybe, he's kind of listening. All right, God, give me your spiel. Like, I know know what's going to happen here. You're going to tell me about another plague. You're going to think, well, did you just tell me that he is going to listen to time? Like, did you just tell me, like, like we're, about to, we're about to see some victory here. I mean, maybe that's how Moses would have received it. Time and time again, he's told, plague coming, no change. Plague coming, no change. Finally, God has a conversation with him to say, one more plague. I'm going to bring it upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go. The Lord sovereignly determines when the suffering of his people will end. The same is true for our suffering. Whatever you may be going through, whatever circumstances you may be dealing with, you would choose the adventure of that stops today, right? Like that ends today. Reconciliation happens with that relationship that's broken right now. Or the tension that I'm experiencing with this particular person or this particular issue at work or whatever it may be. Like we would choose for those things to end today. This passage helps us to see that the Lord ends the suffering of his people in his sovereign time. Pharaoh's lack of response now turns to a guaranteed response. He will release the Hebrews to freedom as a result of this death plague that's to come. The death of the firstborn. This is something, remember, that was anticipated. It was an anticipated step needed to pull this rescue off. You go back to chapter 4, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. This isn't God sitting around thinking like, all right, like, how am I going to do this? Like, I thought the frogs were going to work. I thought the the gnats were going to work. I thought the flies would surely work. Surely three days in darkness would work. It's not him sitting around trying to get creative as to what will it take to get victory. You go all the way back to verse 22 in chapter 4. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. and I will say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This was communicated at some point. We don't have it in the actual storyline text. But at some point in the, in the initial conversations that Pharaoh's having or Moses is having with Pharaoh, he would have told him up front, like, this ends with your firstborn dying if you don't let him go. There's going to be things before that. The Nile is going to uh, turn to blood. The frogs are going to All those things are going to happen. But this ends with your firstborn dying if you don't let your heart soften to what God's calling you to. It was an anticipated step needed to pull this victory off. God is implementing what he always knew it would take. Again, that shows his sovereign timing, his sovereign goodness. And don't miss this. It applies to your life, too. There are things that God could do right now to alleviate your bad circumstances. He could change it right now. I mean, there's particular people in our church that we're praying for their health right now. We believe that God has the power to give them healing in this moment right now if he wanted to. And barring a miracle, if he does not, there's a reason for it. There's a good reason for it. There's a sovereign reason for it. And his sovereign goodness leads us to believe that that suffering will end in the right time according to his plan. God plans to show Pharaoh who really controls life and death. Remember, Pharaoh told Moses in chapter 10, the end of last week's sermon, he says, the next time I see you, if you see my face again, you will die. We didn't hit on this last week, but there's there's maybe an allusion to Pharaoh's concept of of him believing that he's a deity. Because think about it, God's going to tell Moses this later when they're on the mountain, and Moses says, I want to see you. What does God say? Nobody can see my face. If you see my face, you'll die. It's almost as though Pharaoh is, is embracing a deity mindset when he says, you can't see my face again or I will kill you, right? God's attacking this, this deity-type mindset of Pharaoh. It says, I'm the one who controls life and death. It's very particular what's coming in this plague here, that the firstborn's going to die. It's not just that a lot of people are going to die. It's specifically told to us that the firstborn will die. Now, I told you at the beginning of our study in the plagues that you can explain some of these through extreme natural occurrences, right? I think we talked about when the Nile River turned to blood that some people believed that a natural occurrence was for uh, mud up north through flooding to kind of infiltrate the Nile River, and it would give it like a a a reddish bloody type color and it could kill the fish and whatnot. And so a lot of people are skeptical of God's miracles here and think, okay, these were natural occurrences that that the the Hebrews kind of jumped on and said, this is God doing amazing things, but it was natural things. We don't believe that this plague specifically kind of removes any concept or idea that that could be a natural thing. Firstborn uh, boys, firstborn girls, firstborn animals, Those are the ones that are going to die in this plague. Not your second born, not your third born, your first born, right? Every one of these Egyptians will start talking to each other in their grieving and in their sadness. It's the first born who's died. Like at some point they're going to realize, hey, that can't be by accident. Everybody's oldest kid is the one who died. Like this isn't a natural thing. This is Yahweh stepping into the camp of Egypt to bring about this devastation. And it will be uniquely devastating for every family. We'll talk about this more. Every family, I think, is touched by this. Even if they didn't have children, it's very likely a spouse could have been a firstborn, and maybe their life is taken. All of them would have had animals in their possession, and they would have had lost there too, right? So every one of these families is impacted by this plague. We find hope in God's sovereign goodness, though. He puts an end to his people's suffering When the timing is right. So number one, the Lord sovereignly determines when the suffering of his people will end. God comes to Moses finally and says, this one plague, this will make Pharaoh let the people go. And I could have done this a long time ago and I chose not to. And there were reasons for that. I believe there are people that we're praying for right now in our church that will be healed. And they'll be healed down the road. And we will say, God could have done it on this night when we prayed for it the first time. And he didn't for whatever reason. But he will at some point, and it will be in a better timing than tonight. Number two, the point to remember, God knows, God cares, God is working, and God will win. God knows, God cares, God is working, and God will win. You take that sentence and apply it to whatever it is you're going through tonight. It's a no to what we've already seen at the beginning of Exodus. Our God knows. He knows what we're going through. He cares about what we're going through. He's working in what we're going through. And he will win whatever we're going through. That's what we believe. That's what the book of Exodus is teaching us. God knows. God cares. God is working. And God will win. I put this in my notes just as I was pondering and meditating this morning on these truths. God will never stop until he accomplishes what he sets out to do. God will never stop until he accomplishes what he set out to do. All of this has been an intentional plan carried out to every detail. We're going to hit on some of these as we go through this more, but we're going to start to see detail after detail about their release, how they're released, what's given to them in their release. These are things that that God told them 400 years ago were going to happen. Every detail of his plan is being carried out. Now, We don't get God giving us details for our plans, right? Like, it would be awesome if we could all look back 400 years ago and and God made promises to our relatives about things that we were going to go through today and how he was going to get us through them. We don't have that. But we can trust, nonetheless, that those plans are there. That God truly has plans for our life, and he's carrying us through all of our circumstances, and he's doing exactly what he intended to do, even what he was thinking 400 years ago about your life. He's bringing you through it in the right time, in the right way, because he knows, he cares, he's working, and he will win. He will never stop until he accomplishes what he set out to do. The New Testament teaches us in Philippians 1. He starts a good work, he finishes the work. In every believer's life, he starts it, he finishes it. Not only is Pharaoh going to let them leave, he's going to command them to leave, right? Right? Like, it gets intense here in the Word. It's like, they're going to beg you guys to leave, basically, God says. The desire by Pharaoh to command them to leave, that part's promised, too, from chapter 6, verse 1. He's not going to begrudgingly, like, I guess I'll let you leave. I mean, it's going to be like, get out of here. And verse 1 of chapter 6 told us that. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And Pharaoh is going to reach a point where he wants to, to not ever see the Hebrews again. Now that'll change again quickly, but he is forcing the Hebrews out. He wants them gone by the end of this. Verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 11, what does it teach us? It teaches us to find hope in God's sovereign goodness. He determines sovereignly when our suffering. Ends. Number two, we find reassurance in God's everywhere goodness. We find hope in God's sovereign goodness. We find reassurance in God's everywhere goodness. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by everywhere goodness. This is a, I think it's a, a, a term or a concept that was coined by this guy named David Murray, who is a, a commentator that I've been studying from recently. Um, it's maybe another way of understanding common grace. Right, so we talk about saving grace or particular grace. That's the work that God does to save individual people. Like He shows particular goodness to those who are His people. They hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit works in their heart to receive the gospel. Like that's specific things that God has to do to win people to Him. But then we talk about common grace, right? The idea that uh, it rained today and it didn't just rain on our houses as believers. And nourish our um, yards It it rained on our unbelieving uh, Neighbors as well right that's common grace That's God showing goodness And grace to all of his Creation in a general way And then he gets very particular And specific with those that are his Uh, This commentator refers To it as everywhere goodness Uh, The ways that we see God's goodness Everywhere all right So number one here The Lord works good things in the hearts of the lost for the benefit of his people. The Lord works good things in the hearts of the lost for the benefit of his people. Now, I'm gonna help you see something that's often used as a criticism towards our faith at the end of this section, okay? But st- stay with me here. We find reassurance in God's everywhere goodness. The Lord works good things in the hearts of the lost for the benefit of his people. This idea of everywhere goodness or common grace. It's the merciful work of God that puts temporary goodness in human hearts everywhere for the good of God's people. It's the merciful work of God that puts temporary goodness in human hearts everywhere for the good of God's people. It's God's merciful pushback against total depravity that keeps this world from deteriorating too far and too fast. Okay, so what are we saying here? We're saying that God and his everywhere goodness holds creation back from being as bad as it could be. Okay? Like the world is full of lost people, broken people, separated people, sinful people, people who walk in the flesh, not in the spirit. And this commentator was particularly talking about how if left to themselves completely, if God's goodness were completely removed from their life, I mean, you couldn't walk down the street without worrying about being killed. Now, some places that's true, right? But in general, he's saying, like, you couldn't exist around lost people because of how evil they would be in their hearts. God restrains some of that with his common grace goodness, right? Um, So it's God mercifully putting goodness in the human heart's to, uh, to to do good for his people Now when we say goodness in their hearts We're not saying that in any way they become uh, Salvation worthy Okay But the example that's being used here Are the Egyptians Are going to be uh, Generous To the people that they have been Slaving over Right These people who have hated the Hebrews Who have mistreated them, abused them, used them for centuries, all of a sudden they're going to give them all of their stuff. Like that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. Like even the people that I am most challenged by like let's say that uh, you know you think about like some of the behavior problems at our school. Right? Let's say like we get to the point where maybe I have to tell this kid like you got to go. Right? Like I'm so fed up with your behavior, like I gotta let you go. I don't give him like a hundred dollar bill on his way out. Right? Like I don't say, like, I'm so annoyed with you, I'm gonna kick you out of our school, and as you're leaving, hey, let me give you a bunch of my money too. Right? Like it's like, hey, get out of here, and the last thing on my mind is to give you anything because of the frustrations you've caused me. They're saying, Hebrews, get out of here, and while you're going, take all my jewelry too. Right? like This is God working and moving in unique, special ways where people who shouldn't be good are being good to his people. That's what this commentator refers to as everywhere goodness. It's God's common grace that he pushes back against how the Egyptians could treat them here. He works and moves and supersedes their sinful hearts so they become generous to his people. Explains why uh, some non-Christians sometimes act better than Christians. Right? And this is the point where oftentimes uh, our faith can be criticized right like people will say uh, Christians are hypocritical and people who are maybe engrossed in like some of the worst sins possible you might say are some of the nicest people you've ever met right Think about it like people who are maybe uh, guilty of certain sexual sins you might say mean they're so kind and so loving and so generous and, and, and the criticism is, Maybe we don't need salvation, and maybe God's not real, or maybe their sin's not really that bad because of how good of a person they seem to come across as. And, and, we're, and we're told to like, uh, turn our attention away from God and explain it a different way, whereas we ought to be able to look at it and say, Hey, that's an evidence of God's goodness, his common grace to where he would work in a sinful heart and use it for good purposes towards his people. That's what happens here in Egypt God works and moves in sinful Idolatrous hearts Who would have craved Stuff like this would have been their God And they're going to give it all the way To the uh, Israelites when they leave These provisions Of silver and gold it ties back To chapter 3 verse 21 And 22 Right? We said that every detail of God's Plan is being carried out You go all the way back to the burning bush where we were Several weeks ago Verse 21 of chapter three, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. So God had made this promise maybe a year ago to Moses. Hey, one of the signs that you'll see of how I've worked to deliver you is you're going to go out and plunder the Egyptians. But this was also promised 400 years before this. You back all the way up to Genesis chapter 15. Remember Abraham in his old age? He's kind of like, God, um, what are you going to do for my people? God says, like, hey, your people are going to end up in bondage and slavery for 400 years. So your great-great-grandchildren, man, it's going to be tough on them. So Abraham's kind of like, man, I thought you made promises to me. I thought you made a covenant to me. God's like, I did make a covenant to you. I'm going to rescue them after 400 years. And when I do, they're going to take all of the Egyptian stuff with them. It's a promise made over 400 years ago at this point. And God keeps that promise. They plunder the Egyptians. And God works in these idolatrous, selfish hearts to become generous. He's going to create favor where there wouldn't have been otherwise. Maybe it's God saying, hey... You guys have worked for free for a long time for these people. It's time for them to pay up, right? Like you've been free slaves for these people for a long time. You're about to get payday, right? They walk out with treasures galore in response to the people ushering them out. God's going to do the necessary work in the hearts of selfish people to make them overly generous towards his own. The freedom that they're going to get, the silver, the gold, the jewelry, even the favor and respect that's talked about here. It's all attributed to God's work. Back to our text in Exodus chapter 11. Speak now in the hearing of the people. They may ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. What are we saying here? We're saying that God works goodness everywhere. Sometimes he even provides for us through lost people and the work that he does in their heart to give us favor with them. That doesn't minimize him, it maximizes him. That he would oversee a a sinful human heart and work in the midst of it. We've seen that he's hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now we see him softening Egyptian hearts to where they give out out of their abundance and generosity to the Hebrews. He's going to pave the way. He's going to fight the battle. He's going to ensure his children are cared for. Now, what's really cool is when you, pass, when you fast forward to Deuteronomy 15, it's as though God gives them the standard for how they're to treat their own servants later by how he treats them here. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 13 If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall set him free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Right? The idea being that when a guy comes to work for you and he's, he's bound himself to you because he's indebted to you, when he gets that paid off, you be generous to him when you release him. Just like the Egyptians were generous to you when they released you. What's the point to remember here? Number two, point to remember the goodness seen in non believers should point us to God rather than away from him. The goodness seen in non believers should point us to God rather than away from him. We need not doubt the need for salvation when we see the goodness in others. The goodness should only reinforce our belief in him. God's everywhere goodness is meant to serve his people. God works good in lost people for the good of his people. Man, it's so cool to see that that God's goodness is sovereign in that he releases us from our suffering at the right time. And that also he's willing to show goodness to us through some of the most unlikely sources maybe. He's so good to us that he cares for us in all the right ways, in everywhere that we go, he provides for us. Which I think gives us a burden of we should excel at giving special goodness to others in light of God's goodness, right? As believers, we should be a source of unbelievable goodness to others. If God's willing to work through sinful hearts to be good to his people, how much more should he work through saved hearts to be good for his people too, right? We've got an opportunity to serve people in our church right now, people that are that are suffering, people that are hurting. Man, let's, let's, let's be generous and let's be, let's be available and let's be gracious to those who can use our help right now. And then lastly, number three, we find peace in God's distinctive goodness. His sovereign goodness gives us hope and comfort that he'll end our suffering when the time's right. His everywhere goodness gives us comfort and hope because we know that he's going to always work for the benefit of his people, even if he has to use lost people to do it. And then lastly, we find peace in God's distinctive goodness. Number one, the Lord treats his people distinctly different from the rest of the world. We're treated distinctly different from the rest of the world. That's the point that he makes here as he starts to wrap up this chapter Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl. Verse 6 There'll be a cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there's never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. A distinction. God's distinct goodness. He treats his people distinctly different from the rest of the world. God intends to further show how distinctly different his treatment is towards those who call, who he calls his own, right? We've seen them protected in Goshen. They haven't endured these last few plagues. Here we're being told man God's going to really show a distinct difference in how he treats people. We have a responsibility to be distinctly different in our response to the one who is so distinct in his in his treatment of us. Right? So if God's going to treat us so distinctly different, how much better should we treat him than maybe others around us too? Right? like We have a responsibility to give him a distinct treatment back in the ways that we passionately serve him because he's so distinctly good to us. We won't take that time to read it, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6-11 through 11 is a great passage to see that. That God chose Israel not because they were special, not because there were so many of them. He chose them because he loved them. And they had a responsibility to love him back. His covenant-keeping, distinguishing love, sets us apart from all the rest. Notice how he says the wailing of Egypt is coming. The cries of Egypt are coming. Egypt will cry in response to the crying that they caused for the Hebrews by taking their babies. If you go back and read chapter 3, verse 7, where the Israelites are crying out to God, it's the same word used for how Egypt's going to cry now. And they had had beaten the Hebrews into submission. They had killed their children. And the uh, the Israelites were crying out to God. God says, I'm going to pay them back now. They are going to cry out as well. They're going to cry out to the night, Because I take their firstborn. While Egypt will endure a pain that cannot find comfort, not even a dog will growl against Israel without God's consent. It's really cool to see that God's protection through the night will come for his people. Now, this impact of this plague is going to be such that no human comfort will be found. Think about it. When you go through a challenging, difficult time, you can lean on other people who can encourage you and love on you and support you through it. Think about this. Every Egyptian family is impacted by this plague. So as you're crying, as you're suffering, as you're torn up and sad about your loss, you turn to your best friend who's going through the exact same thing who turns to her best friend going through the exact same thing. Like there is no comfort to be found in Egypt because everybody's grieving. It's the greatest suffering they would ever experience. No comfort to be had. Everyone's mourning. Everyone's grieving. No friend to lean on. Pharaoh's house specifically is going to be dealt a mighty blow with the heir of Egypt dying. Some commentators pointed out that the the assistant that I told you about earlier, the god um, Anubis, He was depicted as a dog. So like as they constructed like images to worship of him, he was a dog. And so a lot of commentators believe that God is kind of doing a play off that picture here by saying not even a dog is going to be able to growl tonight. Right. Not even the God of the the afterlife for the Egyptians will be able to do anything to my people. They'll be rendered powerless in this moment. I think it's worth noting, too, that death will occur in Goshen. It's just not going to be the firstborn of God's people. It'll be a perfect lamb. They're going to kill it. They're going to take that blood. They're going to wipe it on their doorposts, and they're going to be spared because they deserve death too, right? It's not that they've achieved perfection and they've escaped God's wrath on their own efforts. No, the death angel ought to come and take their firstborn as well, but because that lamb will be uh, killed and the blood spread, God's wrath will be passed over. The Lord treats his people distinctly different from the rest of the world. Here's the point to remember as we get ready to close. Whatever our lot may be, it is intentionally better with God than what it would be without him. Whatever our lot may be, it is intentionally better with God than what it would be without him. Listen to this. We must never mistakenly think that our lives are, would somehow be the same or even better if we weren't following him. That's another criticism that'll come to us as we go through trials, as we process through cancer diagnoses. People will say, like, why are you following him? It doesn't seem to be paying off, right? Like, like your life seems to be uh, subjected to anything that a lost person's life would be subjected to. What I want you to hear from me tonight is that your life, is intentionally better with God, whatever it is you're going through. He treats you distinctly different than the rest of the world. That's what's told to us here. There is a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So whatever our circumstances, whatever our lot is, we can trust that it's better with him. It's intentionally better with him, right? Like we would certainly not want to face... uh, kidney issues, or or cancer without him. Man, our our lot, whatever it may be, it may not be what we would choose, but whatever it is, it is intentionally better because of him. He has plans for our life, and his sovereign goodness is present there, even if we don't see it right away. Whatever we encounter, we can know is only allowed for good purposes. Think about what life would be like without him. We have no assurance of any purpose of it. Like, I don't know how lost people live when they go through trials and difficulties. To have no assurance that anything good's going to come from this, like, all there is is despair in that. The hope is that the believer knows God uses everything in his life for good. It's his distinctive goodness that, that, that really shines through here. We're different than Egyptians, we're different than the lost. As his people, we can trust. He's being intentional with us. He's being distinct with us in how he treats us. That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, between lost people and his people. We can rest in that truth tonight. The application for us is, let the story of Exodus speak to your specific circumstances by looking for the ways God is working good rather than focusing on the ways you feel he is not. Let the story of Exodus speak to your specific circumstances by looking for the ways God is working good rather than focusing on the ways you feel like he's not. I guarantee you, in whatever it is you're facing, there's sovereign goodness there. His timing is right, and he'll pull you out of it in the right time. His everywhere goodness is present there too. Right? Like God's going to work good in in the life of Nadine and in the life of Daniel because they're going to encounter maybe believing nurses and unbelieving nurses, believing doctors and unbelieving doctors. And those, those unbelieving nurses and doctors are going to work good in the life of God's children here. right? Some of them are going to work treatment that will bring healing, and it's God's everywhere goodness that will shine through in a sinful heart, a selfish heart. God will use it for the good of his children. His distinctive goodness gives us hope tonight. We're different than people who aren't his. He hears us, he cares, he knows, he's always working, and he will win. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you and praise you for your goodness. We worship you in that tonight, Lord. We rest in that tonight. God, I pray for our people who are going through plagues right now. Plagues that you have sought fit to uh, let through your, your shield of protection. You could certainly prohibit those things in our life if you wanted to, just like you did some of these plagues for the the Hebrews. Others you let through your shield for for various reasons, to teach them, to grow them, to strengthen them. So Lord, help us to rejoice tonight that there are things that you are shielding us from that we will never experience. You've prohibited those things from coming into our life. And we don't even know to give you praise and glory for it, but we do tonight, God. We, We thank you for your goodness that we don't see. Uh, because we never have to experience what it is you're protecting us from. we God, we thank you that in the midst of whatever challenges we are facing, we know that you're, being good, you're going to be distinctly good in the midst of it too. Help us to see the ways that you're working good. Help us to trust your timing for when you're going to remove the bad. We trust you for that. We give you praise and glory and honor. We want you to be known through our life in the hearts and minds of those around us. So God, use whatever means necessary to ensure that happens. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org. Thank you.